I want to say just how good it is to gather here today and worship with you all on Good Friday. But as I start off here, I want to ask you a question. What makes Good Friday good? What makes Good Friday good? Like we're here today to to gather on Good Friday and, and we're effectively celebrating and worshiping God because Jesus died. And for some people like Daniel had alluded to, that might be really a weird thing to celebrate the death of someone. And I mean, you you don't typically go to funerals and and, and you see people jumping up and high-fiving everyone when a loved one has died because death is horrible. It's horrible. It rips families apart and it leaves a, a vacuum that's not easy to fill. And yet today, we are gathered on this Good Friday service to celebrate and rejoice in the death of Christ. But that's what Good Friday is about. It's about the death of Christ. And I'm going to come back to that over and over and over again over the next 30 minutes and ask what makes Good Friday good. Because let me tell you, as somber as Good Friday is, there's so much rejoicing to do in it. it. It is both a sad moment as we consider the great cost that Jesus went through to pay for our salvation, and yet we rejoice because he paid a great cost for our salvation. And yet our text today, it's it's equally confronting because on the one hand, we come face to face with a crowd who, and if we're going to be honest with ourselves, is a lot like us. And not just us, but all of humanity. But on the other hand, we're also confronted with the fact that we have a Savior, our God, Jesus, who like I said, would quite literally pay a severe price to seek and save the ones that he loves. Amen? Amen. Look at verse 39 with me. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He, he is the king of Israel. But let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Well, let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. You know, at some point in our lives... We've all experienced rejection, whether by a love interest, a university, a college, family, friends, whatever. There's a thousand reasons and ways that we could be rejected. And yet here's where it gets uncomfortable because we're all guilty of doing it as well. Now, sometimes we reject things for good reasons, like our health, our diet, our spiritual well-being. But don't be mistaken, we are all pros at rejecting not only each other, but people in authority, our leaders, and even God himself. And I'm guilty of it as well. I'm not just a salesman, but I'm a client here. I mean, let's go back to the garden for a second. Genesis 3, right? God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit. And what did they do? Ah, there you go. They ate the fruit because they rejected God's rule and authority, full stop. And if there's anything I want you to be reminded of in Genesis 3, because when we look at Matthew 27, we see some similar traits. 
First, when Adam and Eve rejected God, they did so unanimously. It wasn't just Adam. It wasn't just Eve. It was both Adam and Eve. Secondly, their rejection of God was deliberate. They knew full well what they were doing, and yet they did it anyway. And thirdly, they rejected the very words of God himself. And honestly, church, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed from Genesis 3 to today in 2023. And this is exactly what you see in Matthew 27, verses 39 to 40. From the soldiers to those passing by to the Pharisees and the scribes, the rejection of Christ was unanimous. It was large-scale rejection of Christ. But their rejection was also deliberate, and it was against the very word of God himself, the very word become flesh. They not only rejected him as king of Israel, but maybe more importantly, they rejected him as God. Look at what Matthew writes in verse 40. He says, the crowds cried out and the Pharisees cried out, if you are the son of God. Now, for the sake of time, I I can't unpack this title, son of God, but as Steve Dodd likes to invite people out for nachos, I'm a pizza guy. I'm going to just leave it at that. I'm, I'm a pizza guy. And if you want to invite Steve and I, it's pizza and nachos. But here's what I will say about it. Jesus was the son of God because Jesus was God in the flesh. And it's this title when you read in John 19, 7, that the Jews fell upon to have Christ crucified. Because to call yourself the son of God was to equate yourself with God. It was blasphemy. And yet this is the same title Ironically, you see playing out in Matthew 4. You know, one of the first sermons I ever preached for Calvary so many years ago was on Matthew 4 and the temptation of Christ. And looking back, it's very easy for us to miss the fact that Satan is attempting in Matthew 4 to stop what would happen in Matthew 27, the death of Christ. He's trying to prevent it out in the wilderness. Word for word, when you look at Matthew 4, verse 3, Satan whispers, if you are the son of God. Matthew 27, 40, if you are the son of God. Because if he could stop Jesus in Matthew 4, then Good Friday would never happen. If you are the son of God. And you know, I I find that interesting Satan tried attacking Jesus' humanity in Matthew 4 and Matthew 27 when Jesus was, quite possibly, at his weakest point. But honestly, if we're going to be honest here today, church, isn't that the same about us? And I'm not saying that we are Jesus in Matthew 4. I don't want to hear Pastor Steve saying, oh, everyone's emailing me saying that we are Jesus in Matthew 4. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But whether you're struggling with sin or you're just going through the ringer, or you're having a hard time in life, and you're at your weakest, that small voice comes up. If Jesus really was the Son of God, surely this wouldn't be happening to you. If Jesus really was the Son of God, life would be different. If Jesus was the Son of God, life would be easier, or he'd show his love for you. He'd prove his love for you. But then here's the beauty of it all. God's like, you want proof? Here's Romans 5. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, 
Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps, someone might even dare to die. But God proves, he proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single human on earth. Humans aren't good. Every person sitting here needs Good Friday. Me? You all, the city, the world, everyone. But there's only one person who's good. That's Jesus. And on Good Friday, God proved his love for us, the ungodly, (laughs) that the Son of God would die for us. Christ was mocked for us and cursed for us. He was insulted for us because he loves us. In the truest sense of the word, love won. On that cross 2,000 years ago, God's love triumphed over sin, death, and the grave. And if God didn't do anything at that point, and Good Friday never happened, then we are all still dead in sin and under God's judgment. But yet the love of God looked upon humanity and said, enough. And on that cross 2,000 years ago, Christ was rejected by the ones he loved And because he was rejected, all you will ever hear if you put your faith in him is you are accepted. You are mine. You are known. I love you. I know you. I will never reject you or cast you aside or put you out. I died for you. I was rejected for you. My nail pierced hands and feet for you. I bore the wrath of God for you. Because here's the reality, my friends. Good Friday reveals the depths of our sin, the love of a Savior, and a good God who would stand in our place and do what we could never do. Look at verse 45 with me. Matthew writes, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now hear me, church, hear me. Verse 45 can be a bit of a rabbit trail when it talks about the darkness. What was it? How far did it reach? How dark was it? But Matthew writes here, in verse 45, that it was a legit thing. But more importantly, it was what the darkness represented. You see, when you look through the pages of Scripture, darkness is not a good thing. Take, for example, in Egypt. During the plagues, a deep, thick darkness covered the entire land. You see, that was God's judgment upon the Egyptians. Or how about Jesus being the light of the world? He came into the darkness, John 1. Or Proverbs 4.19, When it says the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. And then there's the whole outer darkness thing that Jesus talks about when it comes to hell. Like darkness is never a good thing in scripture. And here in Matthew 45, sorry, Matthew verse 45, this darkness is indicative of God's judgment. Listen to how one commentator describes it. He says that the darkness came over the whole land was to serve as a direct sign of God's displeasure. It represents a judgment on the land and its people, but also a judgment on Jesus himself. For out of the darkness comes his cry of desolation. 
The cosmic blackness hints in the, in the deep judgment that was taking place not only upon the whole world, but upon its Savior. Here in verse 45, God's wrath, his judgment upon the sins of the world is reaching a climax. And church, I want us to understand this is a very, very good thing. Like knowing that God poured out his wrath on Jesus should cause us to fall on our faces in worship because Christ was born for this moment. Sin must be punished. It must be. This is why Moses said what he did, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's a pretty good coffee cup slogan. Yet he does not leave the guilty go unpunished. God must punish sin. And we've got to ask ourselves, how can God be both abounding in love, forgiving wickedness, and yet not letting the guilty go unpunished? Good Friday, the cross. You see, it should have been us up on that cross, but it's not. Because God required a perfect sacrifice. We aren't perfect. He required a lamb that would take away the sins of the world, and Jesus was that lamb. He was the only one, the only one, person who could come before a holy God and be the sacrifice that God required. And yet in verse 46, Jesus cries out those famous words of David in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Calvary, hear me. There's only one person, like I said, in all of human history who would understand the depth and breadth of that question, Jesus. These are the words of a perfect Savior who would say in Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. But I need to be crystal clear here for a second. In no way, shape, or form was the unity of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit ever broken. In some way that we can't fully understand and we have to come to terms with that, God the Son knew what it was like to experience the desolation of sin, of being forsaken. And yet maybe when you look at the words of Habakkuk, it it best explains it. When he says, your eyes, God, are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look upon wickedness with favor. But in this moment, as the hands that hung the heavens were crucified and nailed to his creation, he not only cried out in pain from his wounds, but because of the painful loss of fellowship, even only momentarily with his heavenly father, something that had never, ever happened before. But yet, don't be mistaken, God never turned his back on Jesus that day. And I love how Alan Clifton puts it. He says, God was never nearer than at Golgotha as Jesus gave himself up in full obedience to the Father's will. God was there. In fact, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Amen? And as he hung there between two criminals... Rejected by those he came to save, forsaken by the Father, experiencing the desolation of sin as the insults rang out and the mockery was laid, if you are the Son of God. I can only imagine the words of Deuteronomy 31.6 ringing out in his head. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. And then, 
He breathed his last. Let us never forget, on that day 2,000 years ago, our Savior would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that today in 2023, we could say, my God, my God, why have you embraced me? Look at verse 51 with me. This is what Matthew writes. He says, suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after after his resurrection. They entered the holy city and appeared to many. You know, at the start of my sermon, I asked us the question, what makes Good Friday good? Like logically, if you think through it, it makes sense why Easter Sunday is good. I mean, Christ resurrected. But you can't have Easter Sunday without Good Friday. Good Friday is good because Jesus died. But Good Friday is good because Jesus would be the sacrifice that humanity needed. He'd be the sacrifice that all of you needed. But Good Friday is good because he took the full wrath of God upon himself instead of us. And church, there's a million reasons that we can get into why Good Friday is good. But as as I slowly wrap up here, I want us to be reminded of really two things when we look at our text today. First, Good Friday is good because Jesus' death reconciles us back to God. And second, Good Friday is good because it anticipates a resurrection. And I can't wait for Pastor Steve to preach on Sunday. It's going to be good. I've heard a bit of what he's written already. And you guys better come out on Sunday. (laughs) But look at verse 51 again. It says, suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. Here's the reality. Here's the reality. Sin separates us from God. Right? In Genesis 3, God pronounced judgment upon Adam and Eve, and after that, he basically kicked them out of the garden. The relationship, the intimacy that they shared with him was severed. But time and time again, as you flip through the pages of Scripture from the Old Testament to the New, you see that it's God who takes the initiative to pursue and dwell with his people. This is why when you come to the New Testament, you read things like, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means... God with us. Or how when you come to John's gospel, John writes in the beginning, was the word Jesus, yeah, Jesus, he was the word, uh, he was with God, and the word was God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But throughout time, God had instructed his people to build things like the tabernacle and the temple, because he still wanted to dwell with his people. But there was always something between God, no, there's always something between the people and God, whether it was a curtain, a veil, whatever. Same deal in the first century. The Jews had a, a temple, it was magnificent, where a single priest would go in and worship and offer prayers and sacrifices on behalf of the people. And in this temple, you had a place called the Holy of Holies. This is like the inner chamber where, the, where something called the Shekinah glory of God resided. But separating the, 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 the Holy of Holies from this one lone priest was a massive curtain, 60 feet high and 3 feet thick, like from your finger to your elbow. So you see that separation still exists. But God yet, he still wants to dwell with his people. But it begs the question, what, what does it mean? What does it mean then the curtain was torn from top to bottom? 
It is finished. It is finished. There's nothing left to do. Christ paid it all. He did it all. And yet, second, reconciliation. The doors of reconciliation were blown wide open. You see, this perfect sinless Savior was exactly what we needed. A great high priest who fulfilled all of God's requirements. And he offered himself once and for all as the perfect sacrifice. And the work is done. It is finished. And his death opened the doors for reconciliation back to God. This is why the book of Hebrews says, Every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time and time again, which can never take away sin. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. There's nothing left to do. There's nothing more to add. You will never come before God and say, Lord, look at my resume. Because he's going to be like, was not the death of my son good enough? Your church won't reconcile you back to God. Your pastor won't save you. And your fellowship groups can't remove the sin from you. This is why we sing, what can take away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Of Jesus. And what can reconcile us back to the Father again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That last line isn't in the hymn. I just want to toss it in. But this is why Good Friday is so good because Christ's death reconciles us back to the Father. The curtain has been torn, the veil destroyed, and all are welcomed in. But Christ's death also anticipates the resurrection. And this is also why Good Friday is so good. Verse 52, the tombs were also opened, and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, and they entered the holy city and appeared to many. To borrow from the words of John Owen, at the cross, the death of death happened in the death of Christ. Now, yes, these, these verses are a bit of a mystery. Who, who were the saints? Where do they go? What did they say when they rocked up to whoever they went and met? They probably proclaimed the gospel to them. We don't know, and, and God doesn't intend for us to know. But their appearance testifies to a greater truth. My friends, Sunday is coming. Death has been destroyed. Jesus' death is a resurrecting death. The grave isn't the end. As painful as death is, and I'm, I'm in no way minimizing the pain of losing a loved one, but for those who are in Christ, there's no more sting for you. The grave has no power over you. It cannot hold on to you. You're no longer bound to it. No amount of dirt can keep you in it. Christ's power overcame it. His blood bought you from it. His voice calls you out of it. The Old Testament overcame it. You aren't left in the grave anymore. <laughs> Amen? Yeah, there you go. His death was a resurrecting death, and in him the death he died was a more powerful death than what death could hold on to you with. It's like Augustine said in the fourth century, his death killed death. Not only is his death strong enough to split the veil of the Holy Holies from top to bottom and so canceling sin, it is also strong enough to open tombs and so cancel death. Sin and death are humanity's two greatest problems, and Jesus conquered both. 
This is why Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other option outside of him. No other philosophy will save you. No other God wants you, although they'll tell you that they need you. No other God would pay so great a cost for you. But yet Jesus says, I love you. I died for you. I resurrected for you. And that, my friends, is why Good Friday is so good. Do you believe that? Amen. Amen. Yes, yes. So let us stop there. What does all this mean? What, like, what, what, what do we do with this, pa- with this text today, with this passage? If you're here today and this is your first time hearing this, then praise God. But put your faith in Jesus today. Repent of your sins. Trust in him with your eternity and taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't wait until tomorrow. Don't wait until next week. Do it now. Do it today. Luke, and maybe more than any other gospel, describes Jesus saying, today, today the kingdom of God is at hand. Today salvation has come to your house. Today the kingdom of heaven is near you. Today, for God so loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Put your faith in him today. The cross is not just a story It's not just a story you read your kids. It's reality. But if you're here and you know Christ, and you know him as your Savior, then praise God. Praise God because he has called you from death to life. Rejoice in your Savior. Know that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing. Rest in that. That's what makes Good Friday good. We don't come here today to to mourn any old death. Yes, we're saddened that our Savior had to go to the cross for us. But we, we, we rejoice that he went. Because Sunday is coming. Cast your eyes upon that cross, that old rugged cross. And know that Jesus paid a cost to redeem you, to seek and save those he loves, and that you would know him and he would be known by you. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, what can we say but thank you? What could we offer you apart from our thanks and our praise of of who you are? A great and holy God that would pay such a sacrifice and a price to save us. Lord, thank you for this time that we got to hear your word preached. Thank you for the ability to sing your praises. Lord, let us never forget that this day 2,000 years ago, you died for the sins of the world, for our sins. And let that fact change us and drive us to the cross to call out to you in forgiveness. Because, Lord, we need you. Oh, Lord, we need you. 
I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.